This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, 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 so I'm going to extend some of the, the, the points that, that Rusty raised, but in particular in the context of this structure which is the cerebral cortex. So, so I, I think most people be familiar with this large folded structure here at the top is the cerebral cortex. It makes up about three quarters of the volume of the human central nervous system. And, and, and I think most people in this room know functionally how important it is. It's this, as I say here, this sort of executive and integrative center of the central nervous system. Um, it's a huge amount of real estate. It does important things, so it's affected by a variety of diseases that... that, that have their etiology or their impact at different stages in age, starting from conditions with a very early onset in childhood, like autism, um, right through to diseases of later life, like dementia or, or, or stroke and those kind of things. So what I'm going to talk about today is, is how do we start dealing, dealing with questions about how do you control the development of the cerebral cortex, particularly in terms of, of size, as a sort of very simple concept. And, and as I'm sure you've heard in previous CARTA symposia, and, and you'll hear this afternoon, and there's a lot of debate about sort of cognitive capacity, cognitive ability, and its anatomical underpinnings. And you know, is it bigger brains make you smarter and so on? But, but there's some degree of agreement around the idea that certainly more neurons give you sort of more processing power at its most basic rate. Complexity is probably very important as well in terms of elements that one can build circuits from and what you do with them. But so raw real estate is also, is also quite important. And that... Um, become very obvious when you start looking at, at these sort of three cherry-picked uh, primates here. We've also got, got, got humans, chimp, and, and rhesus macaque. And, and what we're looking at here is the number of neurons in each cerebral cortex, where you can see that humans has roughly threefold as many compared to, to chimpanzee, even though in terms of actual developmental times, so, you know, everyone, I could ask the audience how long do humans take to develop? Easy, e- easy one for us all to answer in nine months. Um, a chimp is roughly the same, but you still end up with a brain which, which has a cortex with, with, with about a third of, of the number of neurons. And then macaque, which is shorter in development again, but has you know, tenfold fewer, fewer neurons. So, so there's a very basic developmental biology question is, how do different organisms generate different numbers of neurons within their cerebral cortex? And, and at what level is it controlled? And by understanding that question of control, can we start thinking about how you might then evolve these differences between different species and plugs into the kind of genetics and, and that kind of work that, 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 that you'll be hearing about, about later in the afternoon. So to think about this, you've got to think about developmental biology, which is how do you actually make things in, in, in the cortex in the first place. And, and this is a picture from um, mouse brain, where this red thing, this is a slice through the mouse brain. This would be the outside. This would be the inside. And what all these little red blobs are is these are what we would call progenitor cells. But for, for the sake of simplicity, I'll call them cortical stem cells. So these guys aren't neurons. This is before you have any neurons in your brain, or in this case, the mouse brain. And this is, is a slice this way through one half of your cerebral cortex. So the skin would be out here, for example. And there's a hole in the center of the brain here. And these guys are, are lined up in a row. And what happens is these cortical stem cells go on, and this is them in black, to generate cortical neurons that are arranged in layers over time. So you, make, you do this inside-out development, you make the deep layers where you make the upper layers and so on. And, th- and, there's a, and this is a, a very stereotyped program that plays out in every single mouse in the same way. And in a mouse, it takes about six days to generate all, all of these cells. So that's fine. So you've got one big population of stem cells. There's some very interesting biology about them, how they diversify. But at its heart, these guys make all, all, all of this class of neurons. 
So when you're thinking about how you build a brain, you've got to think about how they do this. But, but a key concept within this is, is what is the output of each one of those cortical stem cells? And there's a, there's a principle in development here where we talk about a clone. Now, this isn't Dolly the Sheep type clone. This is a different clone, just to make your life slightly more complicated. And it's a very basic idea. What it is, 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 is in a mind experiment, if you could label one of those red cells on the previous slide with an indelible marker, so every time it divides, its daughter cells inherit the indelible marker and let development play out over time, what you'd end up doing is labeling every single cell it made just passively by, by letting it roll. So that's the idea. So, so, so you label a clone. So if we're doing this in the cortex, we, take, we know what the start of cortical development looks like. We've got these progenitor cells lined up. We call this a, 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 it's an epithelium, basically. And we know what it looks like at the end of development, where you've got these layers of neurons, and we've got little labels that let us tell them apart. The mind experiment and the real experiment is you then label one of these guys with an indelible marker and let time play out. And you do this, and you look at thousands and thousands of these. What you find is something very simple. If you do this before you make any neurons, you end up with purple spots that cross all the layers and make all of, all of the cells. And what that tells you is that you've got this fundamental principle where each cortical stem cell will make a clone of cells that populates all of the different neuronal types. And so what that tells you then is that your clone is this sort of atomic unit of building a structure within the nervous system. This is true in the cortex, the example I've given here. It's actually true in, in your spinal cord, your, your eye, and, and, and so on. And what that does is it gives you an idea of thinking about this problem of at, at, at a kind of a comparative development level, how do you make a bigger cortex in, say, a human compared to a macaque or, or, or a chimp? And, and, it, and it's actually very simple. So, so if you think about it in clonal terms, either have more clones... So increase the number of, of stem cells before you ever even make the structure, or actually change what each stem cell does in terms of what the output of its clone is. So make the, make the sort of production from that clone larger. And it's a way of, of ending up with, with, with more neurons. The example I've got on here, this, this, is, this is mouse. And my, mice are, are, for want of a better term, relatively simple in this respect, which is they have phases. They, 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 this is your starting stem cell. It proliferates, and then it has this linear program. It expands itself, then it starts making neurons, during which it depletes itself, because you're eating up stem cells to make neurons, and then they switch to make these supporting, or these, these, these second cell type of the nervous system, the astrocyte, which is actually functionally very important. And it's a nice linear program. So, so, so one of the big questions in the field is, is when you start getting to primates, how complicated does this get? Do you just take this simple template and just make more of them, and you just, just generate more real estate that way? Or do you diversify this and make it much more complicated? And, and, and how would this work? And if you can understand that, then you can start plugging in the kind of molecular genetics stuff and think, well, how, do, how does this work within all this? Um, the question is, how do you study this? Um, labeling single cortical stem cells in a human might get you in trouble in most jurisdictions at this point. Um, so, 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 so we did something similar to, to, to what Rusty spoke about, where, but in this case, we were very much focused on the cerebral cortex. So we started with human, and we took human embryonic stem cells, or these induced pluripotent stem cells that, 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 that Rusty mentioned. And what we essentially worked out how to do, using principles of developmental biology, is make the cortical, just the cortical, neural stem cell. And they formed these rather pretty rosettes within this. And what we found is that we could put them into the dish, and they would replay this generating the layers of neurons on exactly the time scale that they do in normal development but in, in utero, which was, which was a bit of a surprise. And, they, go, and they, they actually go on and they make these beautifully connected networks. So these are neurons which are firing away happily in these, these, these human neurons. 
So this was a bit of a surprise to us that they observed rules even though they were isolated from the sort of whole embryo. Um, so, we, so, so we then extended this and said, well, what happens if we look at these different species? And so, so this was work done by Tomoki Otani when he was in the lab. And this is actually a collaboration with, with Carol Marchetta, who you, who you heard mentioned by Rusty, um, and actually Eliza Kernow at there's a primate research institute up, up in Seattle. And what essentially we did was work out how to make pure cortex from these cerebral cortexes from these different species in the lab. And, and this is John Gurdon, by the way, down the bottom for those of you who don't know. Though we don't actually have John's iPS cells. We think there's a market for them, but a rather dodgy market for them. But anyway, so, so, so this is chimp, and they, these are actually two different species of macaque because we, we, we could get access to them. So, so we could make the cortical stem cells, and they could replay development. And what we found was each species, just as it does in, 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 sort of in vivo, has a developmental time scale which it observes in the lab, by which I mean the green cells here. So, 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 so the bottom of each one of these graphs here is, is time. And the green are those deep layers of neurons, and the red is these, these later-born neurons. So every species makes green before red, but what happens is the macaque makes red much sooner than the human does in the chimp. And actually, the human and the chimp look remarkably similar at the resolution that we can look at with these kind of assays. So in fact, the rest of what I'll talk about, we just look at human and macaque, because actually human and chimp look very similar, which is actually kind of reassuring, because you'd want them to look very similar, given what you heard about in terms of, of genome similarities. So, 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 so every, every species has a schedule, and I should say the schedule is remarkably similar to what happens in utero. And we extended this to all sorts of other analyses, which I, which I won't go into detail with here, including when do they make neurons, when do they make different classes of neurons, and the kind of electrophysiology you heard about, when do they mature, when do they form, 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 form that. So, so, so what this provides us now is a platform to start asking the mechanistic questions that I mentioned, which is, well, how does the stem cell that actually generates the neurons within each species behave in terms of making, making a cortex? And what that involved doing is, 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 is an, in the lab version of the, the experiment I described, where we label just, just one stem cell in, in a population of tens of thousands and actually watch that over time and then look at lots of individual stem cells. And to do that, we use a trick where we, we take um, um, a virus, which is, is essentially we've, we've sort of damaged, so that this virus can infect a cell, but then it can never get back out again. So it brings the marker with us, the marker then stays. So these are, these are what we call replication incompetent lentiviruses. This is a rosette made up of each one of these blobs is a stem cell. We label one stem cell. And then we follow this thing dividing over, say, 10 days within the lab. And we can reconstruct the clone. And one of the challenges here is, is as we mentioned, primate development is very long and very slow. So to give you some kind of benchmark, mice will take over the world. And the reason mice will take over the world is they do all of their development in less than 21 days. And they'll generate litters of, well, you know, those of you who've been unfortunate enough to have your, your, you know, your garage overrun by mice, right? as opposed to humans, and we know how long, how long humans take. So what happens is these, and I mentioned that mice will make the cortical neurons in six days. Humans will do it over four or five, six months. And so you get an idea that these clones become enormous. So we have to look at them in blocks of 10 days. So sort of the first 10 days, the second 10 days, and so on. And the first thing we can do is, is start measuring, you know, how, what do they make and how do they make it? And as biologists, we tend to think biology is a mess. There are, you know, there are kind of rules, but they're a bit dodgy, you know, and it's a bit tricky to make sense of. It's all about extracting order from chaos. And physicists think that we're a bunch of Luddites and that we just can't think straight. And um, there are clearly physicists in the audience. I heard some sniggering. Um, the, um, and, and a colleague and friend of mine in Cambridge who is a physicist uh, uh, called Ben Simons 
It says actually, you know, you biologists, actually, if you take these complex data sets, there's usually some very important principles underlying them. And I said, right, prove it. And so he did. So he took all these kind of data and he ripped them apart. And, and rather than me boring you for 10 minutes with all the details, I'll give you the punchline, which is what I told him to tell me too, which is that essentially, when we start looking at, so for example, this is how many stem cells are within a clone over time. And this is in the first 10 days, for example, 20 days, gray is the next 10 days, and black is the next 10 days. And you see, actually, in each window of 10 days, humans all look the same. And what's happening over time is, within the clone, they're actually expanding the number of stem cells in the clone while making neurons. So they're kind of, the whole thing is growing exponentially. Macaques start off looking very like human, and then, and then they crash. And what that really means is that, essentially, the macaques stop making neurons much sooner than the human do. And it's a very simple thing. What it means is that the humans make these big, long, extended clones, which allow them to make far more neurons over a much longer period of time. So they'll make more neurons per stem cell. And they do it in kind of clever ways, in, in stuff that I wouldn't get into today. Now, that's all fine, and it's very descriptive. Um, it raises the second question, which is, which is, well, fine, how does this work? Now, there's a very broad distinction we like to make, which is how much of this biology is controlled intrinsically, whatever that means in terms of the mechanism, and how much of it is controlled externally, signaling environment. You can boil it down to you know, the sort of nature, nurture, who do you know, what do you know, but you, you get the basic, basic principle. I once heard that one refer to the European versus the American model, but I couldn't work out which one was meant to be slightly not complementary. But anyway, the... Um, so in this case, what we can do is we can essentially do transplantation. Now, clearly, you know, I'm not going to get a license to transplant macaque cells into humans, certainly, um, and probably not the other way around either. But what we can do is we can do transplantation in the lab, where we can label up, say, the human stem cell or the macaque stem cell, and then move, say, one in a thousand of those into the other environment. So essentially, you're exposing them to the other species' environment and asking, now, what will they do at, at its simplest? And we can then roll them out over time and do all our maths. And essentially, all I'm showing you here is that nothing changes. So I'll give you the punchline, which is the number of neurons a stem cell makes is actually intrinsic to the species. It's got nothing to do with the environment at the resolution of this assay with all sorts of caveats around it with what we're, what we're measuring. By which we mean if I move macaque into human, macaque doesn't care. It'll still make what it wants to make when it should make it. And similarly with the human, if I move human into macaque, it'll still generate a certain number of cells. So that's quite striking, but it's about, it's about numbers. There's a second readout which is very important, which I've rather glossed over, which is this, what neurons do you make and when do you make them? So this idea of switching from the early-born neurons to, to the late-born neurons I mentioned. Uh, and this, this, this was the thing I mentioned. So, so, so we, we make layers, we mentioned this, but also the humans here switch to making these red guys much later than, than, than the macaque do, for example. And we can look at this as well within these, these systems. And again, what we find is that if you look at these pie charts, this pie chart looks similar to, identical to this pie chart. And what we're doing here is putting human into human or human into macaque or vice versa, macaque into human or macaque into macaque. And essentially, the species don't care. They're going to do what they're going to do. They're sort of like my 11-year-old son, you know, in the sense that it doesn't matter what environment there's a certain amount of pig-headedness. So, so, so what this means is, and I don't know where they get it from, I blame his mother. Anyway, the, um, so, 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 so what, what we've learned from these kind of studies is that you know, the primates do development slightly differently. And I should say something which I haven't had time to go into today. They also do it differently to small mammals like mice. 
So this idea that you're early on you're expanding your stem cells while making neurons, that, that's quite different compared to small mammals. So there's, there's sort of a big mammal problem in addition to the primate problem. And this is something which, as a field, we haven't really grappled with yet. You know, there are such huge differences between the kind of tools we use in the lab and the model organisms we study in the lab, like mice, in terms of their biology, and primates. That, that, that Some of them aren't to do with being primates. They're to do with being large, slowly developing mammals, more than anything else. But even within this difference... What we find is that, is that humans then are different to the smaller brain primates. And that essentially, these differences I mentioned are all cell, auto- cell autonomous. And so what, what that then leaves us at, and this, this, is, this is where we are now, is this provides us a platform to ask, what are these mechanisms? How, how do we control what a stem cell does and how it does it? And our goal is we can identify what those differences are, what those sort of cell intrinsic controls are. And clearly, yes, we all think about genetics, and there is an element to that, but you know, we have to be quite broad-minded about what the sort of cell intrinsic st- clocks are. That, that looking at those differences will give us insight into, into evolutionary differences by sort of thinking, thinking backwards. I should say there's another side to this too, which is the mechanisms that control differences in spe- between species of brain size are also very important in, in two clinical contexts. One is control of brain size developmentally, which has a very strong impact on various intellectual disabilities. Um, the other side is obviously um, different types of brain cancers because it's the same biology there as well. Um, so I'll just finish there. And just to say, I mentioned this, this, this was led by Tomoki Otani, who's, who was in the, in the lab up to recently and is now with McKinsey in Tokyo and, and is carried on by, 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 by two other people within the lab that, that I've mentioned here. And, and, and just to say that none of this work would be impossible without Ben, uh, Rusty, and, and Carol. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.